0: Hi, I'm Michael O'Connell, host of the It's All Journalism podcast. For more than a decade, It's All Journalism has produced a weekly podcast featuring interviews with working journalists, educators, and media thought leaders, all discussing the ever-changing media landscape. We've covered a wide range of topics, such as solutions to journalism, mental health in the newsroom, local news startups, investigative reporting, online harassment, and new technology. Over the years, It's All Journalism partnerships have played important roles in expanding our reach and ensuring that we are able to continue producing our weekly podcast series. We are currently seeking new partners to help us keep this podcast going. If you believe in It's All Journalism's mission, if you want to see these conversations continue, go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the partnerships link and find out how we can share your company or organization's good work with a wider audience. Maybe we can produce a podcast series for you or host your next webinar. The It's All Journalism team is ready to spotlight your organization's good work and keep these important conversations going. Go to itsalljournalism.com, click on the partnerships link, and let's collaborate. And now, here's our latest episode.
1: We are now seeing conservative activists come after corporate initiatives around DEI. And this is going to have a chilling effect. And it's an outright attack to say nothing of the social conversation that's happening amongst various political candidates. The events of 2020, particularly
0: the Black Lives Matter movement and the murder of George Floyd, prompted many news outlets to finally confront the systemic racism and lack of diversity, equity and inclusion in their newsrooms, as well as in their coverage. But three years later, how much change has there really been? I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Martin Reynolds is the co-executive director of external affairs and funding at the Maynard Institute. He's also the co-founder of Oakland Voices, a community storytelling project that trains residents to serve as community correspondents. As we're recording this, Martin will soon be doing a presentation as part of the Maryland Delaware DC Press Association's Code Switching Series, where he will discuss unconscious bias in reporting. Martin, welcome to the Assault Journalism Podcast. Thank you, Michael. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you're here. So tell me a little bit about yourself. You're in Oakton right now, but you know, yes. where'd you start out? What got you interested in journalism in the first place? Oh man,
1: it was I found journalism very much by accident. I was born in San Francisco, raised in Berkeley, California, then defected to Oakland, as I often like to say. It's an
0: interesting arc,
1: I know, right? Interesting <laughs> arc. They're all near each other anyway, but you know, my focus is in <laughs> Berkeley, and I'm there all the time. But you know, Berkeley people are a unique uh, breed. But now I live in Oakland, and I uh, found journalism very much by accident. I was, um, you know, after high school, went to Berkeley High, and I, I was bopping around, working restaurants, doing music. And then I happened to come across writing for mass media at Merritt College, the junior college, and it ended up being writing for the school paper, the Merritt College Reporter with the, I still remember the advisor, Felix Alazalde, And that was around the mid 80s, like late 80s. And it was right around that time. I was living in West Oakland, actually, at the time. And the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake happened. And so the the freeway, the double-decker freeway in that community, pancaked. And I was living not far from it. And I went down to the site after the earthquake and I wrote this first person piece for the paper. And I was like, wow, this is something I could really get into. And so I ended up transferring to Laney College, which had a little bit better of a program. Bert Dragon was there, the Laney Tower Tower at the time. Now I think it's called the Peralta Citizen. And then I kind of really started my journalism career. I transferred to San Francisco State to get a degree in journalism and I got an internship First for the Chips Quinn Scholars, actually, which was run by um, Gannett and the Freedom Forum. And that got me at the Oakland Tribune in 1995-ish. I also had an internship with the Dallas Morning News. And then I went from intern to editor-in-chief in in 13 years.
0: Wow. Well, good for you. Let's start out with your current role at the Maynard Institute. For those who aren't aware of the Maynard Institute and what it does, could you sort of give us a lowdown on that?
1: It's the oldest journalism training nonprofit that is dedicated to really helping America's newsrooms reflect the diversity of the nation. And it was founded by nine diverse journalists back in uh, 1978. They were all diverse newspaper journalists, including Bob Maynard, who actually went on to own and operate the Oakland Tribune with his wife and partner, Nancy Hicks Maynard. It was Earl Caldwell, a journalist, Frank Sotomayor, also uh, Dorothy Gilliam, who's actually still on our board now, she's in her, I don't know, I can't say how old she is, but she's she's up there and is still just an amazing person and just actually came out with a really wonderful memoir, Trailblazer, about her time as the first African-American woman reporter at the Washington Post in 1963. So it's an amazing group of people. Also, Leroy Aarons, who went on to found the National Lesbian Gay Journalism Association. So they were Black, white, men, women, gay, straight, Hispanic, and were just amazing group of people. And they their whole issue, the Institute came out of the strife and the tensions of the Kerner Report, Kerner Commission Report, which castigated the media for its lack of diversity and for really perpetuating the tensions of the times. And the lack of diversity was cited. And one of the excuses was used was, well, we can't find anyone qualified. There are plenty. <laughs> of Do we still hear that now?
0: You're anticipating my next question. <laughs> yeah,
1: And so lastly, on this, what the Institute does is that it basically trains journalists in a number of areas, and, and our programs are open to all. So there have been not just journalists of color. Training in, jur- in leadership in particular, we train folks in leadership, mid-level managers. I went through a management training program when I was managing editor at the Tribune and helped me become editor-in-chief in two years. So we focus on leadership, skills, but we also train newsrooms around issues around diversity and the Fault Lines Framework, which Bob Maynard came up with, and I'll stop with this, which talks about how we all see the world through the prism of, of race and class and gender and generation, geography, sexual orientation, and self-categorizations of could be religion or politics as well as ability, and how we align across those social fault lines shapes our perception and therefore our biases.
0: Well, I'm sure if, if media took a test again now, they would be perfectly diverse. And they would, oh, yeah. they would we, we, check we've all those boxes. We've
1: it. It's all done.
0: Yeah. <laughs> a narrative that I that sort of developed in this podcast over the last five years, because, you know, you may have heard a lot of things happen in the last five years. When I started the podcast, everybody's like, oh, yeah, diversity, we got to do something about diversity. Yeah, yeah, it's really important. we got to do something about diversity. And it really wasn't until, you know, 2020, that kind of turned around. From my perspective, you know, talking 52 people in a year, about this i began to hear you know more movement to this is a problem and we need to address it otherwise we're going to be sort of left out of the
1: conversation mm-hmm. a movement by whom journalists because this struggle has been happening a long time i think what it is is like that's why they when they call it sort of the racial awakening or the the reckoning i say well no it might have been an awakening for a certain group of people a lot of people have been working on this for a long time
0: Oh yeah. Oh no, no. I don't, I don't want to say that nobody has, but it, it just, the angle of the conversation had changed. Yes. Did you see any change in the last, you know, five or 10 years in the conversation around race in, in the newsrooms?
1: You know, I think your point about 2020 is an important one because I think, I mean, I think five, 10 years, I think consciousness has grown. I think in particular As journalists, as Gen Z has stepped into younger millennials and Gen Z, I think are really going to be the catalyst and the propellers of this forward. Because how we align across these social fault lines, particularly of generation, and we're seeing in news organizations real tensions generationally about, you know, the expectation for particularly on the part of leadership and managers, which often tend to be can be boomers for there to be an expectation on the part of Gen Z and millennials to be considerably more culturally aware, culturally competent than they often are. And so that creates a tension. So I think the generational dynamic is one that comes into play. And if you look at maybe jump into 2020, I think the good part about the racial awakening and reckoning was that people who weren't as keyed in, really, I feel that there was some sincere recognition. In a way that we have not seen, and I also think that the the census of twenty twenty really put this into stark focus, especially when there was a Washington Post story that talked about that, in fact, probably folks of color, particularly you know black and brown folks, were undercounted. So the demographic shift that have been hailing, they're going to make media need to be far more diverse and welcoming this and embracing this as not only morally but from a business perspective, they're already here. And so if we don't get with it, particularly mainstream media, how are we going to inform a populace that is increasingly diverse? So I feel some optimism. I'll stop there. But now I have some concern, which I can, uh, maybe you have another question, but I have some concern about now. Tell me, what are your concerns? Well, my concerns now are that here we had a bunch of, for instance, journalistic mea culpas on the part of like the LA Times, the Baltimore Sun the Kansas City Star, and even the Philadelphia Acquirer, these big takeouts on the systemic racism that they said that their coverage perpetuated. And I do think that one thing that was really powerful about the 2020 period was that we were actually beginning to use the words that needed to be used. Even us at the Institute, when we did the Fault Lines training, it always felt like a bit of a downstream mitigation from the upstream and deeper waters of what's really happening underneath, which is this this systemic racism and social conditioning and white supremacy culture that exists within this country and that we're all steeped in, right? We didn't create it, but we're all steeped in it. And so we were always often reticent to kind of use the words. And now I think we're using the words. And as journalists, the words matter. And so if trying to unwind these systems, we're not trying to point fingers, but the reality is these systems and social conditioning exist and it exists for journalists. We're not like immune to that, like, oh, because we're supposedly objective, which we never have been. So what I'm excited about is that we're actually using the words, and I think it may be uncomfortable for people at times, but that's okay. And that's powerful. My concern now is the retrenchment that we are seeing. The economy happens and then people go, oh, DEI, that's a nice to have. Also, we've got these structural and institutional attacks following the affirmative action decision. We are now seeing conservative activists come after corporate initiatives around DEI, and this is going to have a chilling effect. And it's an outright attack to say nothing of the social conversation that's happening amongst various political candidates. So I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about journalists in certain sectors of journalism pushing as hard as we need to push back against these forces.
0: Yeah. When you say journalist, are you talking about like a paper or a
1: newsroom
0: or just an attitude among journalists?
1: Good question. I mean, I think the the other part I'm excited about, I'm excited about a lot of things as I'm freaked out about some. I'm excited about this sort of growing nonprofit independent sector as well as, you know, what used to be so called the ethnic media, which is now just you know, folks of diverse backgrounds running their own shops. INN is growing, Lion Publishers is growing, public media is now evolving. It sort of had been inoculated from some of the challenges that were facing newspapers. And now they're they're like, "Uh oh, we got to change and grow as well. So I guess what I'm saying is, is that I want to make sure that journalists are embracing the notion that they have not been objective, there may be objective facts, but human beings aren't objective. And as Andres Torres from Corn Ferry, a consulting firm talks about, we can manage our subject. We're not objective, but we can manage our subjectivity. And so there's still in some spaces, this argument that, you know, objective journalism exists. And I'm like, well, they're objective facts. Like two plus two does equal four, but now you got people who are disagreeing with that.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) You got the alternative facts program. Anyway, so I just feel like here's an Ali, I'll end it here. I also feel like we're in a situation now where journalists are operating in the sense of, okay, the sky is blue, two plus two is four, but we're dealing with people in certain realms of coverage that are like, oh, no, it's not. And it's never been. And we don't know how to deal with that.
0: Well, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) fairly clearly. I laugh, but it is, you know, it's a discredit to us as a profession. The dragging the feet of some publications and newsrooms of like saying that, you know, a uh, president was a, a liar. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah. Oh, I wouldn't call it a lie. Oh, yeah. well, you know, he's yeah, just an alternate. For- off
1: And I'm like, stop. This fool is lying. Like, it's like the whole thing that we talk about, like the preponderance of evidence enables you to actually make a determination. And if you don't do that, you're actually doing a disservice to your readers.
0: Now, you mentioned fault lines. Could you talk about that a little?
1: Sure. Fault lines is a training that we do in newsrooms and we go through it. We touch on a number of topics. It's sort of, we do a deep dive looking at how race and ethnicity come into play and how that shapes perception, how generation shapes perception. Generation is one of the most fascinating fault lines to me. Geography, right? How one's geography, even within whether it's nationally, internationally, or even within communities. We talk about how gender comes into play and shapes perception, sexual orientation, and how these fault lines intersect. So how does ability intersect with class and gender and race? And this can come into play as it relates to coverage, but it also can come into play as it relates to working relationships, management styles approach to business practice, thinking about hiring and retention. How are, and this is what we'll talk about, how we align across these social fault lines shapes perception and therefore our biases. And whether it's performance bias, whether it's unconscious bias. And so it's a powerful tool because if you ask the question, let's just take it from a coverage perspective. How does this story look like across the fault lines of, and lay them out, and the self-categorizations of politics and religion and the, the thinking being fault lines tend to endure and not shift. And fissures as we often call them could be different. So like for instance, a fissure or a self-cat we're also kind of changing the terminology, it could be self-categorization. For instance, one's political affiliation. Like we're not born Republicans, independents or Democrats, but that shifts. You could argue that at some point politics could become a fault line. <laughs> Absolutely. But the thinking being, if you ask the question about how does this coverage look like, or this topic look like across the fault lines, or this hiring, strategy, or how does our organizational culture look, then you're going to ask questions you otherwise wouldn't ask, you're going to seek data that you otherwise wouldn't, and it's a protection against our own blind spots and biases. So it's a really good tool that we teach to journalists, but also news executives as well.
0: Do you see any particular sort of commonalities from the different newsrooms that you go in? It's, oh, this is, you know, it's this, the same thing we always see, or is it, is there
1: sort of different in different groups? It varies. I think it varies because we also do fault lines in BIPOC-led organizations, you know, just because folks are BIPOC doesn't mean there aren't issues. Maybe They
0: get a free pass. They don't get a free pass, (laughs) right?
1: There could be, there's colorism, there's tensions within that, there's stuff around gender, there's stuff around generation, there's stuff around class. So maybe it's less around race. There's these other fault lines and other issues. And let's say it's a majority white newsroom with a smaller percentage of of folks of color or of diverse backgrounds. There are the tensions around folks not being aware of how they're showing up, right? Our white brothers and sisters not, you know, sort of centering their whiteness. and, And there's the fragility piece that comes up into play. You know, the notion being that the idea with fault lines is like, look, let's give each other some grace and it helps to explain why people's behavior may be a certain sort of way. It doesn't absolve people, but it can help explain it. And then we encourage people to, there's a lot of resources out there. So for instance, for me, when I talk about the, we all got our work to do. So for me as a man, my work often is around patriarchy and understanding how I'm showing up as a man. So when we come in these sessions, I try and ease the tension in the room often by white folks by saying, we all got our work to do, we're all on a journey and here's my work. And I think that really helps. But the thing that I see consistently is just tension, particularly tensions around class, tensions around race and tensions around gender and generation. So it's a ton, it's a ton of tensions. It's like a tension field zone. Okay, so I go
0: through this training I sort of identify the things that about me that make me different or are my fault lines, you know, age, gender, etc. But it seems more self-focused rather than the problem is you're not working well together. Individually, you're not putting yourself. This is where I'm coming from, you know. That's maybe where they're coming from, and trying to communicate that way.
1: You picked up on a good thread there, Michael. You must be a journalist. Which <laughs> that. One of the things that we're also talking a lot about is that it is this personal journey, right? And I think the rub often happens with journalists. For those of us trained of a certain generation, there's like this distance, like I am this sort of blank slate, right? Objectivity. So what do you mean there's bias here? What do you mean I got to, I don't have anything to do with the story, right? We separate ourselves from the story. But the reality is you can't separate yourselves from the social conditioning that, has you thinking a certain kind of way when you show up that shapes your perception. And that isn't to, you know, pillory you, but the problem isn't that this conditioning exists. The problem is if you act like it doesn't affect you. And so when you go through this training, this gives you a tool to think about yourself and we'll often give assignments. So like, for instance, now you've gone through this, we'll do, we'll work with clients to come up with a particular how, let's say, for instance, there's a particular project they want to work on. So then they can get their hands in the clay about, okay, now let's apply fault lines to this project. Or if it's a management style, how am I going to rethink my approach to management considering the fault lines? Also, it provides some common language so that if you're in a conversation with an editor and you're a reporter and you're trying to explain something and the editor's not getting it, you can say, well, perhaps this is missing your fault line. And then rather it takes the tension out of the room. It doesn't mean like they don't understand. It just means, oh, there's a blind spot as a result of this. And then perhaps the person can explain it a little different so that they'll be like, oh, okay, now I get why that's a story or that this source makes sense for this issue.
0: I've been in certain types of training and not fault lines where... You know, objectively, if I could step back and say, "Yeah, the guy who really needs to sort of address these things isn't paying attention or isn't seeing himself in that space," and you don't get buy-in from him, and it's his personality is the thing that's creating tension around other people. Oh
1: uh, yeah, you know, Michael. Unfortunately, we can't solve that problem. Like this is the point about journalism where leadership comes into play. It's incumbent upon leaders in an organization to set the tone, to articulate why this matters to the growth, sustainability, and credibility of an organization, of a news organization, particularly in diverse communities. And frankly, even the communities that would appear homogenous, let's say there's a predominantly white community, but there's different generations, there's different class, there's different genders, there's all kinds of stuff that's going on, coming from different places. So how many organizations are terrible, well, bad managers are really troubling people promoted rather than extricated. And journalism organizations have been really poor at getting the people out that don't get this. I don't have a whole lot of patience for people who don't want to understand that they need to be aware of this. And that's because I have my own work to do. So what makes you think you don't? And so, yes, your point about when you go to a conference and you're doing a training, and then you got the person in the back who's like, I'm only here because it's mandatory. Yeah, you can't force people. It just has to be a culture shift within an organization. And quite frankly, you've got to weave this stuff into the structure, the marrow of an organization from performance reviews to sourcing. You've got to reward it. If you look at, for instance, KPCC and my friend Ashley Alvarado and how the work that they did to really make diversity a pillar of Southern California public Radio's strategy takes a lot of work, a lot of accountability and a lot of support on the part of executive leaders. Because for so many years, the argument has been one that's been journalists have an obligation, but when obligation happens, like as soon as something hits the fan, you know, it becomes a nice to have. Yeah. If you're not tethered to growth, sustainability, credibility, There's always going to be some crisis. So I just feel like, yeah, there's such a great opportunity if you think about your community as a partner rather than as a subject.
0: Yeah, that's actually a good way of putting it. And also, you know, I'm thinking back to what you you said before about the journalists and their sort of shield of objectivity, their detachment when they cover things. And I feel sometimes that, that that's I I don't want to say it's an excuse. It could just very be very well be laziness that it's easier for me to talk to these sources so I can get my story in on time mm. so that I can go do this or that.
1: Yeah, no, you're right. And there's the part about haste that is problematic.
0: Right. Because that erases everything. Yeah. Because, oh my God, it's breaking news. Yes. Well, why don't we, no, 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 no. We got to get it. We got to get it out. We got to
1: get it. We got to get it, it up. Yeah. And like, what are we doing? Like, what are we doing? So
0: what what are we getting out to who? Yeah.
1: And why? What's the reason? And I think there's some value to that. But I think like, if I were going to be back in a nude room again, you know, I wouldn't want to be on the hamster wheel of the insatiable putting out of content all the time. Like it would be exhausting.
0: You're talking to a man who has to post seven things a day.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And how can you be careful in that and and thoughtful? Yeah. Like, how is that possible? It's not possible.
0: Yeah, everything kind of sucks right now.
1: It, well, it, it kind of does, but it also, I mean there's a lot <laughs> that sucks, but a lot there's a lot that's amazing. I think so too. And I think there are other examples of great newer institutions that are coming up and creating their own legacies like MLK50 which was founded by Wendy Thomas to commemorate, you know, Martin Luther King, but now it's a, a tremendous news source. Just got a big grant to, for supporting that. There's the Outlier Media in Detroit. Yeah, they're fantastic. And then you've got Oakland side. Now I'm on the board of that parent organization, CitySide, but that's just a few years old. Folks focusing on covering Oakland and they do community listening and they have a mission metrics program where they're actually, you know, sort of created their journalistic value system. Why are we doing what we're doing and really being clear about it? So I think there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of people are trying to think about this in new and different ways. And so I'm hopeful as a result of that. Tell me about Oakland Voices. Sure. So Oakland Voices was founded back in 2010. I was managing editor at the Tribune back then. And at the time, you know, the Tribune, when it was owned particularly by Bob Maynard, had a real history of total community coverage and really trying to be connected to the community in a much more deep way. And that began to change. It was purchased by um, Media News Group and Dean Singleton, although, you know, it's funny, Dean was often vilified, but then it was bought by you know a hedge fund. And Lord knows how good we had it with old Uncle Dean. You know? <laughs> and so Voices, they had this idea in talking with members of the community about how could we think of something to develop? And so we had been talking with some members of the community. We got invited out to this conference from Journalism That Matters, this sort of uh, group of disaffected journalists who like to rethink the whole concept of journalism. And they invited me and some community members out and we talked about what might be possible. And we came back with this idea of sort of this mobile kind of newsroom or offsite newsroom. And so we created this newsroom in a branch of the Oakland Public Library and the library partnered with. And then also out of that, we got a grant from the California Endowment to create a community storytelling initiative with the goal being to build a relationship with the newspaper having community members do it, and to have a health lens to tell the stories, and it's been going strong. And we've graduated more than a hundred community storytellers. And the goal is having them shape the narrative of their community. The thinking being that you can't a community can't be healthy if it has inaccurate view of itself. And this empowers members of the community to tell the stories we give them. And then the Maynard Institute was the, the backbone of that, helped create a curriculum and sort of the infrastructure for the program. And when I left the Trib, we kept it going. And it's, we're now, we've got a new cohort now of 10 community correspondents. We've collaborated with Oakland Side, the Oakland Tribune on political coverage, really great stories on just things that are happening in community.
0: It reminds me a little bit of what, you know, the documenters and City Beat, are doing, but also, you know, it's a solutions journalism type thing as well, by being out in the community and involving them, that sort of greatly informs the voice of the the newsroom or the publication. Is that a model do you think that could be replicated elsewhere pretty easily?
1: Well, you know, we've done it in Sacramento one time We for a couple of years, and we did it in Jackson, Mississippi. And in fact, one of the, our graduates in Jackson ended up, she was a paralegal. And then she became a columnist from the Clarion-Ledger, and now she's a, a communications professional at Jackson State University. Her whole career changed. And we've had people in Oakland who have gone on to you know, write professionally as a result of this. The intention wasn't to sort of create the next generation of journalists. And I would say it can be replicated. I think now, though, these things are happening by themselves in certain communities. It was challenging to try. We wanted to do it in like Cleveland and some other places, but it was challenging in part because national funders didn't necessarily want to support it. And so we had to build relationships with regional funders and regional and state funders. Philanthropy is still kind of catching up to the value that narrative change in journalism represents. And I think it's part of why Press Forward, John Palfrey at uh, MacArthur Foundation is trying to get. These local foundations to understand that, you know, you can't just support workforce development and the things that so often local foundations are emphasizing to look at journalism as a utility. And so if that were the case, then I think there could be more resources. And now I don't know, you know, would it be good for us to replicate it somewhere? I think so. But it would have to be you have to have people from the community in the community running it and doing it. But, yeah, I think the model could be replicated elsewhere.
0: The idea of nonprofit newsrooms and funding, local funding, a lot of these newsrooms that, that we've been talking about, the ones that we've been praising are nonprofits. Do you feel that that's maybe the way that a lot of journalism needs to happen?
1: Well, I have some thoughts on this. You know, I feel like there are these seven things that can't be about unbridled profit in our society. So like I have this list, which is housing, education, music, art, culture, health care, prisons, transportation, and journalism. And you could even add eight, like food. So like, think about if these eight things, not that they couldn't be profitable, but that there was like, we viewed these as a society, as a community good, and therefore we invested heavily in them. Think about how different our society would be. It would be completely transformed. So the flip side of that is though, is that there are some folks of color And we run a program called Manor 200 where we're our professional development program where we're training leaders, mid-level managers, executive leaders, storytellers, and also media entrepreneurs. And so these media entrepreneurs, most of them are sort of, a lot of these are for-profit ventures. I don't think we should prevent people from wanting to to start for-profit ventures. But I do think that journalism can't, be ex- so extractive, because it's not it's not a Tide Pod, you know. It's not an iPhone. This is something. It's not so a big, widget. It's not a widget. This is something different. It has the com- you know, the history of the community is wrapped up in. I like, think about these newspapers that have been decimated, right? I mean, my company when I used to work for Barry News Group, all these layoffs and all this you know tension, and they didn't lose money ever, and they're like, talking about, well, we don't have enough money," and I'm like, "You fools." There were all these kinds of decisions that were made in service of profit. And I just, like, it's problematic. So I think for-profit journalism doesn't have to be bad if there is some sort of an understanding that a cap on it and that it's mission driven. But in lieu of that, I think, you know, nonprofit is a good model, but it isn't perfect.
0: Are you going to tell anything really different from what we've been sort of talking about at the code switching? Presentation. What do you
1: think of that?
0: I can't, I mean, not even a taste, a preview. Well,
1: Well, yeah, we haven't talked much about bias. I'll get into some specific forms of bias. I'll talk about how unconscious bias, what are the conditions that unconscious bias is most likely to emerge. And I can tell you one of the four one of the four is haste, there's three others. And what else? I'll talk about performance bias and how that comes into play. And I'll sort of weave the story of sort of how fault line shapes bias. And then also I'll do a, an affinity bias exercise. We'll talk about affinity bias too. And I'll have people do an exercise in who they trust. And it's a pretty cool exercise that kind of blows people's minds about how much affinity bias exists.
0: What is affinity Affinity
1: bias? bias is that basically we connect and look more favorably on people who are most like ourselves. Oh, okay. It's okay. a thing. And we have it. And so this exercise is where I'll ask people to write the initials of six people who they trust in a line straight up and down, and then put a check next to their name if they're the same race, if they're the same class, if they're the same gender, if they the same geography. In this situation, you can have up to six or seven checks. And what we find is that most people have six or seven, four, five, six, or seven checks because they connect most often with people most like them. Interesting.
0: Well, you know, I wish you luck on that. I'm sure it's going to be a great presentation. And I know we've really only kind of touched the surface of this discussion. I I think you said a lot of good things, too. Thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who report the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. To make sure you don't miss an episode of It's All Journalism, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco is our audio producer. Amber Healy writes our web content. Amelia Brust is our booking manager. Steph Thomas manages our social media. Nick Dupre composed our theme music. Carolyn Bilefsky designed our logo. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.